Thank you, Dan, and instrumentalists and choir for wonderful worship today. Turn in your copy of Matthew's Gospel to Matthew chapter 6, Perfect Prayer. Matthew chapter 6, we'll begin in a few moments there, in Matthew chapter 6. At its lowest, prayer is shouting off into the void on the off chance there might just be someone out there listening. At its highest, prayer merges into worship as the presence of God becomes so real that we pass beyond words into a sense of His reality, His generosity, His delight and grace. For most of us as Christians, Prayer falls somewhere in the middle of the lowest and the highest, somewhere between those two extremes. Let's be candid this morning. For many of us, prayer is a mystery. It's it's a puzzle. We know we ought to do it, but sometimes we're not exactly sure how. The disciples were astonished at Jesus' ability to commune with the Father, with God. And of all the things the disciples ever asked Jesus to teach them, the one thing they asked him is, teach us to pray. We see your communion with the Father. We can tell how you are in his presence when you pray. Oh, Rabbi, will you teach us to pray that we might be able to pray as you do? And right here, at the apex of Jesus' greatest sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, they ask Jesus to teach them to pray. Now, his prayer is not an incantation. It's not a charm or a spell It's good to recite it, but it it wasn't meant to be. These are the only words that we say when we pray. But rather, it is like a foundation around which our prayers can be built. And somewhere in this prayer, there's a core, a flow for us to follow as we speak with the Father. Well, first of all, we find God's paternity in this prayer. Notice how it begins there in verse 9b. Our Father, it begins. God's paternity. This title, Father, for the Jews of Jesus' day would represent an image of God that goes way, way back for the Jewish nation. It goes all the way back to the central event of their faith, which is the Exodus. It is there in the Exodus and the release from the bondage of Pharaoh in Egypt that God said that Israel was his son, his firstborn son. Listen to Exodus 4.22 as I read it. God is saying to Moses, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn son. So I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, Pharaoh, your firstborn son. 
The image of God as Father, God's paternity in this prayer, is the image of God as the one who delivers. God is the one who sets his children free. When you call God Father, when you pray, you realize that you're calling upon your liberator, the one who has your ticket to freedom. For the Jews of old, it was a ticket away from the bondage of slavery in Egypt, bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt. For us, it is we are set free. We are liberated from the power, the bondage of sin, and the bondage of grave, the death. Our Father, God's fraternity, He is as our Father, the one who releases us, the one who liberates us. Now, Jesus calls God Father in every one of His prayers except one. In the New Testament, he has that spirit in which God is his father every time he prays except one single time, and that is when he's being crucified and he has our sin on his back and God can have no fellowship with him as father to son, and then he calls him God. My God, my God, he prays, why have you forsaken me? For his the relationship with the father, he would not have forsaken him. God's paternity, our Father. In Matthew 7, 11, just about a page over there, Jesus says, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father who's in heaven give what is good to those who ask of him? So when we say God is our Father, that means he liberates us, but also that he provides for us. As earthly fathers, we strive to provide our children with good gifts. And if we, being faulty fathers, provide our children with good gifts, how much more does a heavenly father provide good provisions for his children? When we say our father, we're saying something else too. Did you catch that plural pronoun, our father? He doesn't teach us to pray, my father. In fact, when you say the Lord's Prayer, you have these plural pronouns. You have this, our Father, which means if God is my Father, then you are my brother or my sister. And together we make this family of faith. There is not a single singular pronoun in the Lord's Prayer. You cannot pray the Lord's Prayer and even once say I. You cannot pray the Lord's Prayer and even once say my. Nor can you pray the Lord's Prayer and not pray for one another. For when you ask for your daily bread, you must include your brother. For others are included in each and every plea from the beginning to end. It doesn't once say me. Our Father who art. In heaven. In Matthew 12, 50, we read, Everyone who does the will of my Father, Jesus is praying in heaven, is my brother, my sister, my mother. That even Jesus said, distancing himself from his earthly family for the moment, that those who have faith in the Father and obedience, they become his family. God's paternity. There's a second thing, God's priority. God's priority. Our Father who art in heaven. 
hallowed be your name. That initial reference in teaching us to pray, to call him Father, brings a closeness, a reassurance, a confidence, and a sense of community that it, he is our Father. And yet, those next set of words, our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. They return us to that sacred dimension, that cosmic dimension where we realize how large God is. He's our Father in heaven who has a holy name. Hallowed be your name. God, make your name holy. God, sanctify yourself. God, we want you to act in such a way that we and other followers of yours will hold your name holy holy. May we recognize your unsurpassed glory and righteousness. We hallow God's name by understanding who he is, at least as best we can with our finite minds. Origen of old said, the man who brings into his concept of God ideas that have no place takes the name of the Lord in vain. Discovering who God is is a way to make his name holy, to demonstrate our reverence for him because we want to believe rightly about who he is. Next, God's program. Your kingdom come, 10a. God's program. This is a a prayer for the day when the contrast between heaven and earth will disappear and that God will reign and rule over the whole cosmos and it will be on earth as it is in heaven. Remember how John the Apostle ends his revelation. He ends with those words, Even so, come Lord Jesus, invade our space and our presence. Our greatest desire as the people of God, is for the rule and the reign of God. So when you think of the word the kingdom of God, it's not so much a place as God's kingdom is not really just of this world, it is of the whole cosmos, but rather it's the reign and the rule of God. That is the arrival of his kingdom. It's interesting that the model prayer does not begin so much with what we need, but rather with this worshipful attitude toward God, recognizing his fatherhood over us, the glory of his name, and desiring that God's will and way will likewise be done on earth. Our true heart's desire can never be accomplished by each of us having our own little kingdoms, but rather it is yielding ourselves to the reign and the rule of God. Sometimes we want to put when in that prayer. Your kingdom come when I finish my degree. Your kingdom come when I've enjoyed marriage for a while. Your kingdom come when my grandchildren have grown. The word kingdom here is not a physical location, but rather a dominion, a rule, and a power. And we're to call upon him to come with no when or if. Bring it now. Oh God, the idea for come here has a sense of sudden interruption. It is the return of Jesus, the Christ. It's not a gradual 
sanitizing of our society. I'm not telling you not to be involved in politics, but I am telling you, you can never legislate the kingdom of God. It is beyond this world or the political parties of this world. It is something altogether different when the Christ invades his creation. Your kingdom come. Do you remember when Jesus walked on earth, that's what he preached? That with his presence on earth, the kingdom of God had already begun the invasion of earth. Mark 1, 14 and 15, listen as I read. And after John was put in prison, that's John the Baptist, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. What did Rabbi Jesus preach? He preached the arrival of the reign and rule of God, saying, The time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. At the center of the message of Jesus is the arrival of the kingdom of God. I am here. The kingdom has come. In Luke 4... Jesus says, I must preach the kingdom. In Acts 1-3, we read after his resurrection, he spent 40 days speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. What did Jesus teach about and preach about? The reign and rule of the Father of God. Your kingdom come. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now the kingdom of God can come in in various ways. When someone proclaims the lordship of Jesus, the kingdom has been multiplied. When we allow, who already profess Jesus as Lord, we allow his spirit to control our lives and invade us with a deeper commitment, the kingdom comes. And when Christ returns and all the fruition, the kingdom will ultimately be here. So we this morning in our Lord's Prayer join John the Apostle, even so bring your kingdom. God's paternity, God's priority, God's program, fourth, God's provision. 611, give us this day our daily bread. Give us today our daily bread. In Jesus' day, a laborer worked all day for a denarius and was paid a day's wage. You worked, at the end of the day you got paid, and that provided food for the next day. There wasn't a savings account or a cushion or a credit card. It was you work a day, you get paid for a day, you buy that day's bread. They had a full understanding. When they prayed this prayer, they didn't know where their next day meal was coming from. And so they could pray with all their hearts, give us this day. Provide for us today some bread some nourishment. God himself was the ultimate source of every good gift, whether food or clothing or work or leisure or strength or intelligence or friendship or whatever you have. It is a daily gift and provision from God. Sometimes we become arrogant And forgetting that God is the provider of all the good gifts that come our way. And 
It is our tithe, is it not, to our church that reminds us as we give that 10% that God is the owner of 100% is acknowledgement that everything that I have comes from you and I give you back a portion knowing that it's all yours, really, for it all comes from you. There are a lot of places on this globe today where people line up for their daily bread. In fact, world hunger doesn't seem to be subsiding. It seems to be multiplying. And the reality is you don't have to go beyond the city of Amarillo to find people looking for their daily bread. As a church family, we provide several ministries to help those in our community with hunger. At our Perkins Resource Center, every Tuesday and Thursday morning, we give out a lot of groceries to families in need. We partner with schools in the Amarillo School District with Snack Pack to provide kids with snacks on the weekends or Kids Cafe where every day some folks from our church are there providing an afternoon meal for the children that are hungry. You might, know what it, you might not know what it means to look to God for your daily bread, but there's some folks in this city who do. Give us this day our daily bread. I came across an article entitled, Nothing But Debt in the Boston Globe. It's about NBA players who after their career have no money left, no fortune left to show for their fame. How is it that they go through millions and millions of dollars? Their playing days have ended, the adulation has faded. They find themselves with absolutely nothing, just mired in debt and financial difficulty. You put an unscrupulous agent, poor business investments, large taxes, greedy family members, bitter divorces, paternity suits, and crippling bad habits such as alcohol and drugs and gambling. And it doesn't take long for the NBA players to go through those millions and find themselves at the end of their fame with absolutely nothing. One such player, Michael Cooper, says, all you see is cash at first. You go out and you buy not one car, but three new cars. And nobody tells you you're going to pay tax on your income. And then you're going to have insurance and registration on the cars. And, well, it all adds up and you don't even notice it. Some of the article talked about team members after the game on the plane flying home. They begin to gamble thousands of dollars on the plane. The younger players who don't have the large incomes can't keep up. They want to be in the end group, and so they might lose as much as they made in that game, gambling on the plane on the way home from the NBA game. Or their case is a million dollars today and waiting in line for their daily bread the next. God we acknowledge your provision. The fifth one is God's pardon. God's pardon. Forgive us, he says, our debts as we forgive our debtors. 
There are some religions on the globe that teach that every action we have has eternal consequences that can never be changed. They are unbreakable in the equation. But the heart of Judaism and Christianity lies the belief that although human actions matter deeply, forgiveness is possible through God's love and become actual. Jesus assumes that we will need to ask for forgiveness, not seldom, but often. It's a sobering thought when we realize our failure at living as disciples of Jesus. But the comforting news is that forgiveness is available through the crucifixion and resurrection of our Christ. But did you notice verse 14 and 15? Look at those verses. For if you forgive men their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Now, I don't know any way else to interpret that, but then to read it for what it says. That if we are unwilling to forgive those who owe a debt to us, then we have placed our hearts and our minds in a position and God cannot forgive our sins. For the reality is, as we become takers of God's grace and we are forgiven for our sins, then we likewise begin to forgive those around us. What we really want is this. We want God to forgive us for our sins But we want to hold anger. We want to hold a grudge. We want to refuse to release or let go of the sins of our enemies or even our family and friends. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's right there in the prayer. Forgive me, O God, as I forgive those around me. And in case you missed it, verse 14, he brings it up again. For if you forgive those around you, then God forgives you. We all had English. You know a conditional sentence when you see it. If then, if you forgive then God forgives you. God's pardon, next, God's protection. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, the sinner whose evil of the past has been forgiven, you've just asked for forgiveness, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now we don't want to go back to that tyranny in our future. And so you might translate this way, do not allow us to be led into temptation that will overwhelm us, but rescue us from the evil one. Now, according to some of the later rabbis, it was thought that One should submit oneself to temptation, and in doing so, if you're able to overcome the temptation, then you might have the spiritual muscle, and you might grow through the strength of overcoming the temptation. But Jesus says, don't handle temptation that way. In fact, it's the opposite approach. Do not test me, God. I'm not able to hold up. Do not put me before temptation's door lest I fail and enter therein. 
Oh God, lead me away from temptation. Number seven, God's praise. God's praise. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Those words were probably actually added later to this prayer. It's kind of a doxology, an ending, a wrapping up. And when I say God's praise, I don't mean God's praise to man, but rather man's praise to God. Praising God. Praising God when you pray. We think about the ultimate position in the kingdom of God, his paternity over us. We realize that our ultimate end is to be part of that arrived kingdom of God and to join the heavenly host in singing, Holy, 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 the whole earth, O God, is full of your glory. That we are to be praising God in our prayers. God's paternity, our Father, God's priority, you're in heaven and you have a holy name. God's program, oh God, let your kingdom invade your creation. God's provision, I acknowledge that you provide the bread I eat every day. God's pardon, oh God, forgive me even as I forgive others. God's protection, do not lead me into temptation. And then God's praise, you have all power, glory, and dominion forever and ever. A foundation, a structure around which we can plan and finish our own prayers. To pray properly is to seek the honor of God. Holy be your name. To seek his reign. Your kingdom come. To know his will. Thy will be done. To acknowledge our dependence upon him for our daily bread. And to ask his pardon and protection in the days ahead. Do your prayers sound anything like that? Or do we sometimes sound like we're sitting on Santa Claus's lap and just giving him a list of the things that we want out of life? Do you begin acknowledging him as the Heavenly Father? Do you call upon him to build his righteous name? Hallowed be thy name. Do you, are you reminded he's transcendent, that he's in heaven, he's so far? above us are you reminded that he is the provider of all that you have as you ask for your daily bread do you remember that he alone can pardon your sins your iniquities even as you forgive those around you are your prayers anything like that I was visiting with a family making a pastoral visit, and I went in, I was visiting with them for a little while, and I don't know why I did, didn't pray. I, I don't know if I 
felt like it might be awkward for them. I don't know if I felt like it might be awkward for me. I don't know if I was just tired. I don't know, but I just made a nice visit and said goodbye. And I was, uh, after I said my goodbye and I was leaving, the wife of the family said, you mean, pastor, you're not going to pray for us? Whatever thoughts I had about that not being a good idea to do on that visit, I was wrong. For she realized better than I that the greatest gift I could give her as a fellow believer, as her pastor, you could give someone as a brother or sister in Christ, is to go before God's throne and seek his dominion and his blessing in our lives and so I was shamed into giving that prayer but I gave it are you praying for each other are you praying for your family members when the disciples looked at their Jesus at all the things he could do the thing they saw him doing the very best was talking to God rabbi Could you teach us to pray like that? Let us pray. Oh God, forgive our prayers. The times that we've approached you in arrogance demanding something as if we were a privileged child. Oh God, forgive our prayers the times we have refused to forgive others and yet have sought your grace. Oh God, forgive our prayers when we've come to your throne as if there's something about us that made us independent from you. And we had our own plans for our own little kingdom and forgot that it was about your rule and reign. That you are the one who is powerful and we, with the blast of your breath, are powerless. Father, forgive us for the times when we've prayed and we've talked about I and me and my and not us and we and our as a family of believers. Oh, Lord, we have much to learn. Teach us, indeed, to pray. Amen.